I think where we're going with this is that there's a lot to tax that's really interesting when you start applying it to property, i.e. land and buildings, and how you apply that to, to future benefits and future costs and thinking about um, different uh, ownership categorizations. We keep referring back to private, public, cooperative types of ownership. And if we think about, well, we've got those multitudes of different ownerships, you know, how does actually um, tax and spend, you know, those fiscal considerations play, play a role, you know, especially when you can um, tax and spend on different things, you can tax and spend on people, on place, on things, on property, you know, so there's, there's ways in which you can start to carve up and make really um, sophisticated nuances to how you want the fiscal architecture to work. And also how that fiscal architecture interacts with other qualities of taxation and other qualities of policy, such as monetary approaches and regulatory approaches. So we're really going to try and get under the bonnet of um, what we mean by fiscal approaches as applied to, to property and planning. And certainly new ideas around value capture. There'll be a lot of um, conversations you know, in, your, in your everyday work or if you're going to move into uh, this sort of field where value captures been thrown around as, a, as an interesting way of trying to leave a future money and trying to capture that now. Um, so we'll start to sort of introduce ideas around that and um, sort of um, yeah, look at the particular nuances in that. So hopefully this is sort of adding, adding some good knowledge to yourselves or reinforcing some things that you, you may already know. So um, in terms of an overview, yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's a deeper focus on these fiscal value capture mechanisms and, and keep keep building on this idea of future value. And if we look at value capture and, and future um, uh, future uplift in, in prices, for instance, you know, it's how you can um, extract some of that, that value and, and when and where and who extracts that, that value that's really important. So it sort of nicely ties into this idea of future value. And it's hopefully introducing this idea that there's a multitude of different instruments or tools or mechanisms that people uh, refer to in terms of policy and how they can layer on each other. And I use this word blending, how we can use a blending of different instruments and tools and mechanisms to get desired outcomes. And some of these desired outcomes might have unintended consequences. Things might not actually play out as, as people um, would hope. Um, so it's, it's an interesting way we can, we can look at these particular instruments. Subsidies uh, are ways in which you can look at um, particular qualities of goods and services. Uh, we can also look at ideas um, in terms of um, uh, these, uh, what I referred to before, sort of tenure type uh, considerations and the economic gains of, of public entities or the private entities, or, or it may even be a, a mixture of um, public-private partnerships, something that's sort of become more mainstream and more popular of late. And that has certain benefits. People would argue that there's a win-win that could be generated through public-private partnerships, but there's also negatives as well that we can pick out in terms of partnering, especially when we follow the money and follow finance. You know, when you're blending public and private money and looking at how that potentially levers future value for both partners, it's, well, who, who extracts that money? And is it the public that benefits from it or the private entity that benefits? You know, how do you share the spoils? So we'll start to explore that, that idea a little bit more. Um, and then, yeah, sort of 
overlay and we, we talk about the you involuntary know, payments of you know, obligations um, we have things like planning obligations developer obligations payments that, that can be applied to development most people in New Zealand be familiar with development contributions you know, DCs as they're known uh, there's lots of acronyms that we'll try and avoid as much as we can but we want to explore what the fundamental principles are here so development contributions you know if you if you're going to uh, be a developer and you want to build in a say a new greenfield site for instance you'd have to contribute to certain um certain other activities that would be um generated in that area you know contributing to schools hospitals um maybe some affordable housing contribution those sorts of things so uh, we'll start to think about ideas around sort of impact fees you know so if a developer is making an impact they might have to um, uh, pay pay for that you know what we call impact fees they pay a fee for that impact that they're creating um so yeah so that's the sort of the, the first part of the overview uh, we'll start to look at different um different fiscal qualities in terms of you know whether it's a levy a user charge so there's a lot as i said at the start there's a lot to tax than you actually think about you know if you um uh, built a toll road for instance next week we'll we'll look more focused at infrastructure you know a, a, a toll um, as a user charge, you know, people get charged for using that particular road is very different to, um, say, a, a national tax or um, that, that, that's used to the, the national road network that's um, not covered by that particular toll road as a user charge. So we can start to carve up and think in different ways in which, which um, how money can be extracted and, and, and put back into the system. You know, and there's, there's certain taxes that are, that are stealth. You might not even be aware that you're, you're paying these particular taxes, you know, GST, for instance, um, you know, it's quite clear you'll see that in a receipt, but maybe if you get in some sort of mortgage interest relief uh, that's been scrapped in, New, in the example of New Zealand, you know, not many people would be aware that there was a, a tax relief on uh, mortgage interest tax relief on, a, on an investment property. So, so some things are very visible, some things are very hidden or stealth. Um, so it's worthwhile sort of exploring those, those ideas um, because you know, as soon as uh, a fiscal consideration is put forward, it's um, it's a lot. Uh, it's quite political, and it and it's very visible, and it's also very attached to ideas of redistribution of income and wealth. So, if you remember when we covered macroeconomic considerations, um, you know, one of the one of the roles of a particular government and the uh, and the treasury will be to uh, uh, redistribute income and wealth to a certain degree and, and different political institutions will will be more interested than others um, and leaving it to the market or not leaving it to the market to to potentially redistribute income and wealth so so certainly fiscal considerations are very visible and very clear and it does hit people's pockets you know it hits people's in terms of you know on the person it could be on things it could be on property and it could be on places um, and you know find this final point here about uplift and some things are you know in terms of value and future value are not necessarily earned people don't necessarily you know you look at you know the, the uplift in property prices in the last five years in new zealand you know that's not necessarily earned but some of that um uh, um increase in value can be captured in some way so there's a lot of uh, nuances that we, that, that we can build out here and if we're anticipating future uplifts in, in value how we can extract that money now and use that for you know various needs and public needs um so it's starting to play around with time to a certain degree so we'll just fire through some some ideas in in um in a light touch um you know, for fiscal policy we, we can talk about subsidies and 
hopefully most people are up with this when we when we covered housing and, and neighborhoods last week uh, subsidies that make the supply of property you know affordable or less than market rate you know so if that's could be like um some sort of um supply side subsidy so for instance it could be uh, like an urban renewal project where where people put in or where government payments put in large you know millions of dollars into urban renewal projects that's going to act as some sort of subsidy on the supply side and enable uh, the building of um, say affordable housing units or, or less than market rates because there's some public money being put into the system on the supply side. Um, fiscal subsidies you know can involve public spending it could be uh, again it's these sort of stealth like taxes or invisible taxes you know tax credit you know so people get credits back rather than actually being taxed is, is a way of um, uh, redistributing in a fiscal way and, and you can have things like cross subsidies so I talked about affordable housing and affordable housing zones and if a whole zone is is um, designated as 20 percent affordable housing there's there's ways in which you know at one part of the site you might be charging you know above market rate and in other parts of the site you might be charging less than uh, market rate but as long as that whole zone and all of the buildings within that project um, are provide affordable housing um, that are you know say 20 percent less than market rate that's providing some sort of subsidy so cross subsidization is an interesting way in which you can uh, move money around and, and, and provide and shape markets is, is suppose is where we came in at the start of this course um, so the sort of supply side things you know supply side subsidies you know ways in which you can governments can put money into the system to try and provide things that uh, lower the market rate or catalyzing particular activities like infrastructure for, for instance and then on the demand side this is all things that tend to affect the person is a way of thinking about it think about supply in terms of bricks and mortar and demand in terms of the person uh, and this could be you know just essentially putting money in the pockets of individual or families of, of occupiers uh, or renters um, there might be some sort of interest relief that i just talked about a second ago or there might be some sort of uh, benefit you know income income support for instance um, uh, or disability support um, ways in which you know on the demand side that you can subsidize the system and, and, the, and the public system so they're all fiscal in uh, on the demand side in, in the way that we um, in the way they look at the property so we can sort of um, build in monetary considerations and overlay them you know there's going to be you know that example of interest rate subsidies that's a sort of a part monetary part fiscal mechanism because you're playing around with um you know supporting lower interest rates so, so there can be a sort of a blend in there as well um but they can also blend in with sort of regulatory approaches so you can have fiscal regulatory considerations um you know for instance you know we, we talked about uh quality standards didn't we and maybe some sort of um for example, if, if the government were giving uh, supply side subsidies to enable uh, landlords to meet a certain quality standard, that's that would be quite a good example of how you can have regulation and fiscal um, uh, incentives and you know, uh, interjections into the market. Um, so, so there's ways in which you can sort of overlay sort of fiscal with, with monetary and regulatory considerations as well. So as we start to sort of break down 
different qualities of tax. Sometimes in the old dusty economics textbooks, it'd be called canons of taxation. Um, I've more excitedly referred to some of these principles as modern tax principles. Um, but we can see the, um, the broad um, direction and uh, intentions of some of different taxes. And if we look at our old friend um, Adam Smith here, sort of 18th century, and those four points of, of the ways in which taxation can be um, have different qualities, nothing really changed much, you know, in, in terms of the idea of, of um, society, you know, this idea of equity that we've been talking about a lot, you know, this idea of certainty, you know, how certain can a government be in being able to extract certain taxation? You know, if you or I suddenly said, no, I'm not paying my, uh, not paying my rates, you know, how, how easy is it for a particular authority to, to control that? And that's the way in which public services are gonna judge what, what particular rates they, they wanna charge. Um, so yeah, there'll be considerations of equity, of certainty, um, you know, to be able to collect um, efficiency arguments, you know, how, how efficient is it to, to collect these particular taxes? And this is, you know, going back into sort of, you know, it's, it's very, um, uh, you know, it could be picked up in, in times of empire, you know, and times of, um, you know, mercantilism and things like that, you know, different periods in time is different tax structures are going to be imposed on society on the ability to, you know, make it efficient to collect those taxes or not. It's not just, you know, the way we, way we see tax now, it's just not, um, we see it as a given, don't we, in terms of, oh, we have to pay our rates and we have to pay, um, um, you know, income tax or GST or whatever, but there's, there'll be certain forces at play in terms of whether a tax is, is going to be able to be put forward. So things like convenience, you know, is it, uh, you know, is it, is it difficult to charge or not? So, so I think that's an interesting just sort of primer to, to thinking about, well, tax just isn't a given. There's, there's different qualities to it. And uh, we won't go through all these individual ones here, but I think it just sort of illuminates some of the, the interesting sort of qualities of, of taxation. You know, you can, you know, is it, um, you know, does that principle have sort of, what we have is automatic in stabilizing the economy. You know, that goes back to that, you know, is it um, easy to, to uh, implement that tax? You know, can a tax um, actually sort of um, automatically stabilize an economy or is it you know, being really inefficient in the way that they're gonna have to pull the levers and, and, and be really sort of technocratic and autocratic about um, making uh, particular policy changes? Um, you know, is, again, is, is it, consistent is it um you know making the optimum allocation of resources you know we remember we went back to those production possibility boundaries and whatever's at the optimum of being able to uh, allocate resources you know if it's on that particular boundary and line you know tax is going to have an Im impact on that and you know does a tax you know does it does it extract at an op optimum uh, value e equity there again certainty um you know, is it uh, productive of a worthwhile revenue? So it goes back to these some of these ideas of you know is is actual income is it earned or not, and and will a tax extracts you know um, increasing earnings uh, in inverted commas? So there's ways in which we can sort of carve out uh, some of the uh, some of the qualities. Um, and I think uh, another aspect to tax is you know who who faces the burden of tax. And that's really important for property, isn't it? You know, if we talk about, say, a capital gains tax, or we talk about a land value tax, and we'll, we'll just go on to them in a second. Um, who actually uh, 
has the you know has the burden and the incidence of that tax because often it falls on the um, the consumer you know the the if it was um, a landlord and a renter and suddenly um, a tax is placed on a property or some sort of um, uh, well you should use that use that example of um, uh, easing of uh, mortgage interest uh, on investment properties you know the argument was well that's just you know if, if that is taken away the landlord will just increase the rent so the incidence of that tax is borne by the uh, by the renter rather than the landlord so so that's a really important part of um, the, the architecture and the yeah, as I say, the, the, the qualities of what tax is put forward and, and who's going to you know, bear the incidence of that. Um, and I think the other, the other sort of key diagram here and to, to explain these different tax qualities more is, is here. Um, if you read on the uh, axis income and wealth, not income and health, I just had a word with the, uh, the publisher to make sure that that um, proofing sorted out. You can get progressive taxes, you can get regressive taxes, and you can get proportional taxes. So some taxes, you know, as income and wealth increases, people pay more in tax. That would be a progressive tax. Um, but you might actually have a regressive tax where people might earn more income and wealth, but actually pay less in tax as, as a proportion of that. Or you could have what's called proportional taxes where you pay, say, 20%. doesn't matter how much income and wealth you, you get, everyone still pays 20%, for instance, or um, you know, rates is sometimes a good example if it's a flat, um, flat rate. But obviously, um, for the New Zealand system, people pay um, uh, based on what the uh, rateable value is. Um, so that's really important in terms of redistribution of income and wealth, isn't it? And different taxes are going to have different progressive qualities, regressive qualities, and, and proportional qualities. And often that falls to sort of different uh, political philosophies and, and sort of ideologies as to, to what's best. Uh, but hopefully you can sort of take away those um, ways in which tax can, um, yeah. And, and sometimes there's a, just sort of going back to that, you know, there can be deflection tactics, you know, in terms of focusing in on one tax and saying, oh, this new tax, or, or we're going to make income tax uh, more, um, more progressive, but at the same time, other taxes might be more regressive so there's all, all that sort of layering and, and politicking that goes on so always be skeptical about different taxations um yeah a in combination and b in terms of whether it's you know progressive proportional or regressive as, as we uh, as we think about these things so um so if you were more of a progressive person you would probably argue that you know people should pay a greater percentage uh, the more they earn if we're looking at incomes um, or if people live in properties that are um, of a certain value they should be paying more tax you know so uh, that's a, an interesting way that we can start to uh, carve up um, the incentives around taxation so this next bit is looking at um, and this table is it's sort of nicely succinctly puts everything together in uh, what a lot of people are talking about in the media, I would say at the moment, and um, for those that are sort of tuned into sort of property and economics in New Zealand, but not fully thinking it through and putting it into a framework. And part of this text that I've developed over the last, you know, a lot of the research that I've been doing nicely uh, puts a framework around the different types of, of tax in land and buildings. And if we're talking about land and buildings, we're talking about property. So you can have things like development tax and planning gains, you know, what we refer to as impact fees that I talked about at the start. You can have things like betterment tax, 
an abetment tax um, is not really being talked about, but is really important, I think, because if public and what we're talking about with abetment tax is if public money is being put into the system, uh, into the property system in some way, I'll use the example of, you know, putting X million dollars into a regeneration project, there's going to be a land and improvement value. And does that mean that just those private operators in that regeneration project, you know, so those private developers in that regeneration project sort of extract all the the uplifting value you know should there be a return back to the public purse that's putting in some money so you or i us joe public putting in money should should we get a return on that money that's being put forward and that betterment that's being made and should it be put back into the public purse so there's um yeah so there's sort of obviously that's sort of politically charged but there's a, there's a really interesting economic question there about betterment that you guys might not have really thought thought about right um, could you argue there's the other side of that does 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 a subsidy exist or could hypothetically exist for like determent like say someone the council wants to put an airport next to your building and actually lowers the value would would you justify a subsidy in that case instead of a tax yeah there'd be things um like if there was going to be any um well all these sort of negative externalities that you sort of pointing out yeah compensation payments isn't it i suppose mm. is what's what's being attached to that um so yeah that would um it's like similar idea as a betterment tax but just the other side right yeah but a, a betterment's all, all about the sort of um the uplift that's being generated by a project yeah so i suppose you're saying is if there's a a more localized uh, reduction in in value you know around that sort of airport mm. um, yeah, I don't think it'd be because I think betterment's all, always about um, the sort of the wider uplift. Oh, okay, it's not like project specific. It might be. Yeah, and that's yeah. And, and that is why I put here. It is very difficult to extract what that value is because <laughs> you know what is public uplift and what is private uplift. You know, it's quite easy for the developers to you know they extract that once they've built out their properties and sold it onto the market. You know, the the the, the money is realized and the profit is realized and you could maybe profit the tax yeah tax the profit See. or the capital yeah. gains and those sorts of things but in a wider sense the fall in the we just don't we don't really ex experience that that um that larger wider market fall so it's yeah it's really sort of um put into the models i suppose, i would say but yeah no, that's a pretty good point so i think that sort of sits within compensation payments uh negative externalities Things like compulsory purchase orders. So if hmm. in a regeneration sense, if there was one property, you know, 99 properties out of 100 where people have left the area, but there's one person hanging on, the local authority uh, wants to, you know, um, uh, you know, totally regenerate that place or flatten it and turn it into a park, but that one person needs to be compensated. If there's a, a legal case for the greater good, you know, compensation to that one person who wants to hang on would be um, would be sort of a you know a good example of um, mm. you know, a compensation payment that's attached to um, um, to a to a compulsory purchase order. However, it's not necessarily yeah, it's not necessarily a negative betterment tax. I would say. Yeah. So, All good. That makes sense. Thanks. Right. And then there's land value taxes and local property taxes that we've put there. Yeah, that could sort of fit within a nice box around, you know, um, say uh, things like rates, for instance. 
um, that you may be paying. And land, land value tax, um, that's in, in, a, in a similar sense to you know, what you would normally consider rates, but it, it's not. It's the actual tax on the actual land, because when you pay your rates, you're paying that local property tax, you know, say a percentage on your property for a service, and it tends to be utilities, doesn't it? You know, whether it's water or electricity, that sort of stuff. But the actual land itself is, um, is something that might not necessarily be taxed. And this is something that's been pushed forward uh, certainly since my time when arriving in New Zealand, that was sort of front page headlines before capital gains was sort of taking the centre stage. You know, and there's, there's a lot of arguments about, you know, land value tax and what that will incentivise and make, and make land efficient in that people know that they've got to add value to that piece of land. Otherwise, they start losing out because they're going to get taxed on that land. So that this argument for actually sort of making land useful and, and uh, in terms of um, future value and, and positive future value is is part of that land value tax conversation um obviously that's controversial because some people might just want to sit on empty bits of land and just extract rent from it you know that unearned income from it so that's why it tends to be you know quite politically charged other ways that we can think about it estate taxes um you know you might have heard of things like mansion taxes so you know if someone's estate it goes over a million dollars, you'd have to pay X amount of um, uh, tax towards that. So people sort of uh, whole estate, um, uh, and you know a lot of this sort of sits around sort of um, what we'd refer to in the in the newspapers as death taxes or that sort of inheritance tax type consideration. You know, in terms of estates being passed down if it's passed down generationally. Capital gains tax, just mentioned before, uh, this idea of you know having to be having to pay for any increase in capital gain. So if you bought property for half a million, then it was suddenly a million dollars. Um, three years later, you'd pay on you know that extra half a million dollars in, in capital gains tax, which doesn't happen in New Zealand. Um, and other ways, these transfer taxes in the UK we call them stamp duties. So when you actually buy and sell a property, you pay a pay a particular tax. Other ways you can think about it in terms of severance tax, you know, once you actually um, uh, sell a particular resource, um, you know, in terms of, um, we use those examples of, of say barrels, you know, uh, natural resources, say oil, for instance, you know, you pay, you'd pay a severance tax at that particular point in which um, it's extracted um, and or pay a, a periodical sort of charge for, uh, for that usage. And then, then also, as you read the text, um, we use this idea of compound growth tax, which is sort of similar to, say, an increase in land values or um, an increase in capital gains. But hypothetically speaking, we are considering how you could tax in a compounding way. You know, if we if we argue that, for instance, in a, in a nice simple example, that house prices have risen exponentially, you know, they're sort of geometrically increasing. Um, 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 well, if there's that compound increasing in terms of growth, maybe we could tax things in a compound way as well. So that's maybe, you know, if you think capital gains is, and land value taxes are politically difficult, you know, this compounding growth tax is probably, you know, another push further. Um, but hopefully it just gets you thinking that hypothetically speaking, you know, the, the gains that people are getting are not necessarily uniform. They, they're a sort of um, um, incremental in a, in a sort of a compounding way. Um, 
So, so maybe some sort of tax that considers that uh, would, would be fair and equitable and go back to those, those tax principles that we talked about before. So hopefully that sort of introduced these different, different ways in which we can sort of tax land and build buildings. And there's, there's a lot more to it uh, that you can think about. All the text after that, and I'm not going to go into each of these in detail, but it, it gives a, an explanation in, in the text as you read it uh, of all those different um, types of tax that I've just talked about. So you know, your developer contributions, um, uh, impact fees, this idea of betterment, uh, yeah, local property taxes, land value taxes, uh, estate tax that we just talked about, capital gains, transfers and severances, um, and this hypothetical growth tax uh, that sort of adds another layer of interest to, to the ways in which we can sort of extract value from, from, uh, from property into the future. So I've got a break there, but I think I'm keen to make sure I get to uh, 450. So I'll just keep keep moving forward on these slides, if you don't mind. Um, so value capture. This is um, it's, it's a bit of a fashionable statement and a fashionable term to work with, but there is some real components to this. And I just want to introduce you to quite briefly on what are these particular components are. So you know, value capture mechanisms based on the uplift in real estate by being increasingly adapted at the core of economics uh, of property and planning and future value. So I think the key term there is uplift in real estate, uh, because you could argue that any tax is a value capture. If there's a, a value and you're capturing it in some way, you could just say, say that's just sort of like an income tax or whatever. But here it, it's all about property, real estate, and, and trying to um, draw on some of the uplift in future value. So this is all predicated on values going up into the future, which is sort of, you know, there's, there'll be business models, there'll be risk attached to it, there'll be all sorts of legal um, um, contracts drawn up by the different parties, et cetera. But, but the, the general principle is all about uplift uh, in some way uh, with, with risk built into it, obviously. Um, so value capture is used to recover the capital cost of development. So it's going to capture some of those increments. So you hear the word increment is, you know, those, those uh, future increases in value, um, often from a, a, a public entity being part of the deal in some way. And we'll talk about public private partnerships and tax increment financing type models in a second. Um, but this is all about trying to you know, catalyze future growth um, and, and um, put that back into the system. I think this next slide is really good in terms of uh, the feedback loop that I've been talking. You know, if I talk about catalyzing something, you know, if if um, we're in a situation where um, public funds are being used to make sure that they're used for value for money, that they pay for themselves, um, this this type of feedback loop, and it's uh, seen here as a virtuous feedback loop. If we, if we pick out um, in the bottom left-hand corner, the, uh, the box above the one in the bottom left-hand corner, we can see, say for instance, if a property asset with potential for increased value after some sort of public sector intervention, that will lead to the property asset um, uh, having actual increased value once the private sector start to get involved. So you have that public sector potential, um, the willingness to, to lead a project and say well we're going to put some money into this regeneration area for example private sector follow-up private sector get some profit out of that once they build out the, the properties and extract 
extract, um, you know, build out the properties, extract the profit or, or, um, or become the investor or sell it to an investor. Then that, if you take that arrow at the top there and, and uh, we see a, a public value capture from, from those profits. So any, any a percentage of um, private sector profit that's reclaimed by uh, the public and then, then recycle that local value recycling. So there's the ability to sort of extract that profits, put in more private-led reinvestment, public-led reinvestment, combination of the two. Uh, and that goes back into the system. And then, you know, any other underused property assets, you know, land, infrastructure, uh, for instance, you know, that's put back into further potential increased um, assets. So hopefully you sort of see that sort of virtuous circle that, that, that's generated here and that interaction between public and private entities that, that, um, that can catalyze that, um, that um, re yeah, realize that value. So that's essentially what, what value captures tends to be about. Um, and I think this table here is good just to um, compartmentalize and break down different examples of cap value capture instruments or value capture mechanisms or value capture tools, however we want to call it. Um, and I use the example of you know, land value tax that we considered earlier. As, as one of those value capture instruments, you know, particularly if land value is increasing, you'd say that a land value tax and sort of extracting some tax of, of future uplifts in land value is, sits within this suite. Uh, things like public easements, uh, for instance, you know, and into public easements in terms of you know people have um, uh, uh, rights to certain properties, um, but not necessarily owning them. Um, you know, roads and things, you know, if you've got a road through your property or whatever, or motorways and all those sorts of things, um, you know, there's, there's uh, ways in which that can be, be captured. Uh, air rights is an interesting value capture instrument in terms of, you know, ownership of those air rights and, um, and the, you know, the public value that's attached to that. Um, impact fees, particularly uh, infrastructure impact fees. Um, special assessment district, improvement districts, you know, it's sort of, Gives this idea of, of hopefully, you know, just as much as infrastructure. Infrastructure is all about catalyzing things. You know, if you, you know, the first point of development is all about infrastructure, isn't it? You know, if you were from a macro scale, if you wanted to develop the, a nation, um, you know, money tends to pour into infrastructure projects because that that connects particular places and and and, and um, enables development to to um, catalyze. So that's the sort of a future consideration, just as like improvement districts, you know, the key word there, you know, improvement. So public money being put into uh, improving, um, maybe it's like the streetscaping or particular commercial districts that, that need um, uh, the facades improving or, the, or the, um, the roads improving, all those sorts of things. It's all about sort of regeneration, future, you know, generating some sort of future value. Something that the private sector wouldn't necessarily do if, unless they know that the public um, partner are going to be putting in money uh, to deal with some of those those um, public goods and um, you know as we talked about natural monopolies and roads and light rail and all those sorts of things yeah they tend to have to have a you know a public consideration in there tax increment financing uh, we've got a whole section on that I'm not going to go into too much detail but I'll talk about that in a second and then also um, joint developments these public private partnerships that you know quite clearly if you know, a win-win's created if there's two you know public and a private entity working together the sum can be greater than the parts so there's there's ways in which they can uh, generate future value and future uplifts so um yeah i've not mentioned too much about tax increment financing 
We've got a whole section on this in the text, so I would strongly recommend reading that, but I'm certainly not going to talk about all that today. But what I can just give you is the broad principle of what it is. And then in the text, there's um, a good explanation of sort of the pros and cons of using tax increment financing. Hopefully through my conversations to my screen and you guys behind the screen, um, you see the word increment. So it's all about future increases, you know, those increments. Um, so what we see here, and as, a, as an example, uh, say if you've got um, one area that's, that's doing well in a city, another area that's not doing so well in a city that needs improving, one way would be to maybe join those two places together and to join them together physically and financially, you might want to build some light infrastructure or say a light rail system. But um, if there was a problem where you couldn't actually afford to pay for that public infrastructure, that light rail system, you know, especially when you see public administrations, local governments more strapped for cash, um, a way to do that is to um, generate funds through, um, through a bond. So what we do here, rather than just a, a direct public payment for that light rail system, you can actually float a bond that's put onto the investment market. And that bond will generate some returns because it will be a bond at, say, 5%. So it's always going to generate that 5% over, say, 20 years. Um, and that eventually will, will pay for the infrastructure and pay for itself. But the other clever aspect of that is what's that area that was down at heel compared to the one that was doing really well, that down at heel area, because it's now connected, it's going to have a lot of activity and it'll have like residential activity, commercial activity, and potentially industrial activity. So as that's gaining demand, it's gaining value, things are getting occupied, houses are getting uh, wanting to be lived in again. So there's a whole heap of uplifting value and that value can be clawed back and extracted. So in essence, you're generating a tax base um, from floating a bond. Um, and that tax base you know, wouldn't have been created without the uh, bond being floated. It's not about natural uplift of the market because there has to be an argument offering in the United States uh, where these are rolled out that um, that area would not have improved but for the, um, the provision of this tax increment financing mechanism. So that's essentially what it's about. And it's quite a clever way to think about generating markets in the future in spaces that would not necessarily generate without this sort of um, um, intervention but the other clever bit is how you can build in a bond as the way of funding and uh, financing that particular uh, piece of infrastructure. So I used a light rail example of what you fund, but you can also use these mechanisms in, you know, they are used in affordable housing. They are also used in terms of um, improving the, the aesthetics of commercial areas, things like that. So, uh, so they can apply, be applied to different sort of uh, types of property as well. But that's the principle behind it. The only other thing I'll explain is, well, just visualizes, you know, if you look at this uh, particular diagram, you can see year one of the TIF all the way through to the final year of the TIF. Um, you've got, you know, if there was no TIF, you would just have, you know, this, this initial uh, box in the bottom left-hand side. But because we're floating a bond, we've got an incremental tax revenue 
uh, in brackets it says they're used to finance the debt service so you know that five percent whatever it is on the bond over 20 years is um, is uh, increasing in in value and then you can draw off that new tax base that's created because you've got the existing tax base and now you've got an, an incremental new tax revenue that's been generated because of that bond um, and you know and if that particular tax base that location reverts back to the initial authority they've got um, a whole revenue stream to, to draw on so uh, hopefully that visualizes that that mechanism um, in more detail so yeah I highly recommend sort of um, looking at the text to you know, further understand what principles behind it and also um, you know the, the drawbacks of that um, you know of course you know one example being you know what happens if that um, down at heel area doesn't take off you know the risk that's involved and um, you know the you know the partnership agreements that are in place the business model etc the business agreement so there we go that's the the tiff stuff that's interesting and then if we head all the way through to the final component of all these you know that's to recap you know that's one example of a value capture mechanism um, and often that sits within them is ideas around public-private partnerships, what I've termed joint development. Uh, sometimes we have things that are called special purpose vehicles, SPVs. You know, that's the vehicle being the, the public partnership. You know, the special purpose vehicle is basically the legal contract between the two parties and, you know, who puts in what money in what stages of the development. You know, it could be the design, it could be the bill, the financing or the, op or the operation, uh, the operating of a, a particular project. Um, and yeah, in this section, when you when you read it, uh, I think some of the the really interesting sort of components, you know, we can pick towards the end here. Um, yeah, one is the sort of the benefits of partnering, you know, economic benefits. Um, um, you know, there's, there's a few highlighted here. You know, it reduces costly design uh, changes. Um, you can increase opportunities to replicate good practice of other projects, you know, because these, these are becoming more, more and more mainstream. Uh, if you've got a, a relationship between clients and contractors, you know, you're going to have less adversarial um, problems and the costs of all those adversarial problems, you know, the, the, the legal fees. And if you've got a partnership drawn up at the start, it reduces that, that chance of uh, litigation if it was just two separate entities working in a project. Um, yeah, there's going to be a greater incentive to work on time. You get to um, tap into, I think it's not, not noted there, you can tap into public money that might be cheaper. If you think about the financing and public money being cheaper than private money, you know, what in terms of a private developer can access money for, what a public institution can access for money for is, is obviously a lot lower in the public sector. And this idea that, you know, drive out inefficiency and waste from, from the property process. And as we've learned over the last few weeks, you know, inefficiency is sort of, you know, commonplace in in property you know inefficiencies often labeled at, um, at public entities but we have to be mindful that private entities as well can be very inefficient you know you look at um, you know monopoly power of, of big corporates for instance that we talked about um, you know last week um, could be in the mix there as well but if you've got a, a mix of public private partnerships that might sort of um, cancel each other out and you know if you've got it all tied up up front people both entities keep each other in check don't they and, and you know, in that drive to keep down costs and there'll be sort of you know um, payments if, if people don't meet certain targets and things like that so there's some some benefits uh, I just talked about a couple of drawbacks 
Um, I think one example I like to give in terms of drawbacks of you know, some of these joint developments, especially uh, say with the example of um, infrastructure, which we'll talk about next week, is well, who owns it after the 20 years? So say if you have a public-private partnership, they're building a bridge for 20 years, all seems very good, everyone's getting the benefits, the public is, the private is, but if it goes back to the public at the end of the, the 20 years, you've got a bridge that may be um, not very well, um, uh, in, not, not in very good shape, that needs improving, you know, potholes might be dangerous, um, you know, that, that's one of the risks of, um, you know, and problems of those, those development projects, because all the private um, spoils have been taken before it gets to that 20 year point where it's passed back to the public sector. And then it becomes a liability on, you know, public balance sheets, you know, if it, if it needs a lot of work to um, get it back up to uh, the right standard. So that's another example there that, that we can talk about, you know, the, some of the drawbacks of these and what I talk about there in that slide, you know, what the drawbacks and potential for, um, um, you know, a downturn in, in the property cycle. You know, we have property cycles, they don't always increase, um, you know, and, and some of that uplift might not be in the model. So it might depend on, you know, say if it was 20 years and we're in a, a down a down point in the cycle, um, then uh, whoever's left holding the baby or, or left holding the, uh, the piece of infrastructure at the end of it um, is gonna be, um, uh, uh, yeah, holding a liability that we'll have to deal with. So, nearly making my time it's 4.50 uh, so in sort of in conclusion you know these fiscal and value capture mechanisms um this the simple yep i think things like um uh property tax is fairly simple but it can also be made quite complex you know particularly in how you know we're dealing with people property things place and it can be quite fluid can't it you know money Money can flow and be be diverted around some of the um, the rules and the regs that are being put forward. Um, you know, some some subsidies you know could be concealed. This idea of say tax relief or, or tax credits, you know, and um, you know it's not just a simple extraction of a fee. Uh, for instance, you know, you can, if you use a toll road, you can quite easily see what you're being charged for and get quite. Um, you know, some people can get irate about that and say, well, what do I pay my um, public rates for? But um, yeah, so there's some things that are concealed and some things that aren't. And there's ways in which you can approach tax. And um, I think that all these tax principles will help your understanding of, you know, when people talk about capital gains tax, for instance, well, it's part of a wider suite of potential ways in which uh, money can be channeled and, and redistributed, you know, whether you do it on the land or, or, or the whole estate. Uh, is it at the point of transfer? Is it at the point of when you uh, of severance, for instance? So there's ways in which you can sort of um, start to carve up and think more detailed in a more detailed way about different types. I threw in that idea of compound growth tax as well to sort of hypothetically think about well, if value is increasing in a compounding way, you know, like how how you have compound interest, you know, maybe a tax on growth in that compound way can be can be attached to it as well. Um, yeah, and I suppose I mentioned there about winners and losers in this process as well. And, you know, if there's winners and losers, you know, that has a bearing on uh, how much sort of money can be extracted, but it sort of certainly highlights um, uh, problems with, um, you know, the political question as well. Uh, hopefully I've introduced you to sort of some of these value capture instruments as well. Um, and it's all sort of centered around uplift in, in land value. Um, yeah, and, 
uh, ways in which it might not have occurred without some sort of intervention or partnership. Uh, so yeah, hopefully focus has been this sort of you know, more sophisticated look at future value, positive and negative, um, and, and some of these opportunities through you know, ideas around you know, taxing the increment of, of future uplifts and how a bond can play an interesting part. You know, it's not just financing and funding, you're generating actual investment vehicles that are traded uh, on markets. Um, uh, to you know, essentially generate money that and funds that would not have been created without some sort of intervention, uh, just as joint developments can create a win-win, but but may actually provide a loss um, when you start to to look more deeply into to those relationships.